Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome to episode one of The Black Athlete. Before we get started, we have to do some quick introductions. I'm Lewis Moore, the author of I Fight for a Living, Boxing the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880 to 1915, and also We Will Win the Day, The Black Athlete, The Civil Rights Movement, and The Quest for Equality. You can also find me on Twitter at LouMore12. I'm Derek White. I'm the author of a forthcoming book, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, The History of Black College Football. I'm also the author of The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of the Black World, and Black Political Activism in the 1970s. You can find me at Twitter at Blackstar1906. So today, and our job here is to talk about the historical context for contemporary sports issues. And so we're going to talk about the most pressing issues in sports, Kaepernick, the NFL, and the activist athlete. Yeah, if you've been paying attention to sports this week, you probably heard that both Kaepernick and ex-teammate safety Eric Reed were asked by the Seahawks and Bengals, respectively, if they planned to kneel during the anthem. Both of them said they could not guarantee that they would stand during the anthem. Cap and Reed's employment uh, is an interesting situation to me, right? Because here you have owners mm -hmm. asking them if they're going to give up their free speech to play. So we've talked about this several times in a DM and conversation on the phone. And what are your thoughts about this, Derek? Well, I think what we're hearing is a, is a, is a clear example of approaching collusion, right? Where these owners have drawn a line in the sand saying that they are no longer going to employ uh, any of these activist athletes. And so with Kaepernick being the most visible and Eric Reed probably being the second most visible, um, both of these players are standing to lose their careers. Yeah, and I think what we talked about earlier is that Reed has a little bit more to risk, I think. I think on the one hand, Kaepernick, I don't want to say he's safe because both of them got skin in the game and both of them risked it all, risked their whole careers. But to me, Kaepernick, because he plays the position of quarterback, because he's recognizable with his Afro, um, he has a higher profile, um, I and he had that $140 million contract, I, I worry a little bit more about Reed in this situation just because he doesn't have that profile. Um and I'm wondering if if that's weighing on him too. Well, I think this is also uh, symptomatic of the NFL in general, right? That uh, the NFL, because they wear these helmets, that the players are not immediately recognizable. This is what makes the quarterback position so dynamic and so marketable across the league. Uh, Eric Reed as a safety uh, lacks any of that, right? He doesn't have uh, Palomalu's flowing hair, right? He doesn't have uh, Ed Reed's kind of energy that he possessed at safety. And so what we see is that Eric Reed could walk past us in the airport and many of us would not recognize him or know who he is. And so his risk is extremely high um, at this point. He's a free agent. He was a first round draft pick five years ago. And he's at the point where he can now move into a 10-year career or he can watch his career disappear for his protests and his action, his activism. Right. And, and the other thing that, that gets me about this is it's, they know the risk, right? And that's the scary thing about this, right? That, that they've seen a, a history of this where activist athletes have been pushed away um, and risked it all financially. 
Uh, one great example is Ali, right? When he refuses induction in 1967, right? He essentially goes broke those three years before he could fight. And another one that comes to mind is, is Tommy Smith, right? Tommy Smith of the 1968 Olympic fame, um, who raised his fist right after he wins the 200 meter uh, championship. And one of the things he talks about, and this is how crazy these risks are, is that when he returned home back to San Jose State from, from Mexico City, Jim Brown, who had loaned him $2,000 because uh, Jim Brown started a sports agency, asked for the money back. So here's this broke student who risked it all. And then when he comes home, you have someone like Jim Brown asking for his money back on top of the reality that he can't find work. Right. I mean, this is the the challenge, right? This is the 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 crux of activism, right? This is why students, student athletes, and athletes in general refuse that they are making a deal to choose uh, uh, more stability in their in their work uh, and in their employment than taking on these broad social issues. But let's let's switch gears a little bit about not just Eric Reed's risk, but let's think a little bit about uh, the owners in this situation, right? That these owners who are who, whether it's Mike Brown at the Bengals who refused to sign, or Paul Allen in the ownership group at the Seattle Seahawks who uh, refused to bring Cap into to camp after he said that he would not protest, uh, as well as a handful of other owners uh, across the league have said that they uh, publicly that they were not uh, hire these activist athletes, most notably Cap and Eric Reed. And so what does this tell us historically? What, have we seen this before? Yeah. Um, Cap likes to use the idea of collusion and, and, and that's like more of a, a union and economic term. But what I see this as is, is historically, and, and this is what we do here on this podcast is, is what you call the gentleman's agreement and a gentleman's agreement worked its way in sports in various ways, most famously, Right. in baseball. Right. And what baseball would say before they signed Jackie Robinson is they would say, we don't have a color line. So legally on our books, it doesn't say we can't sign black players. But what's going on is a gentleman's agreement amongst owners who, who agreed with themselves silently, which is hard to prove that they wouldn't sign black players. Right. And so for I would almost say the last year in social media, I've been trying to hint to this fact that this is what's going on. Now, on the one hand, people want to say it's collusion, but what this is is just owners understanding owners, right? These mainly rich white billionaires know the game and, and they might not even have to, to, to talk to each other. It might just be a wink. They understand what's going on and they're not going to sign um, Kaepernick. And it looks like they won't sign Reed anytime soon. And so what I've been saying for almost a year is that Cap's the new black and this, and this idea that Cap's the new black, that baseball player, um, and we've also seen the gentleman's agreement work out in football, too. Right. Many people forget that uh, professional football uh, in the 19-teens and 1920s uh, was uh, integrated. Right. We saw um, John Shelburne, who is a Dartmouth alum, uh, play in 1920. We saw uh, Pollard play. Uh, and so black players, a handful of them played between the 1920s and 1935. But beginning in 1935, Joe Lillard becomes the last black player. And there's lots of discussion in, 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 in our field about why he was. Some of it's because he was aging. This is what the owners would say. Uh, but he, Joe Lillard was very outspoken about the kind of treatment that he received uh, in the game. Uh, what he saw as racism, and he was outspoken about, he was flamboyant in his style in an era in which we wanted all the players to be just alike. And so Joe Lillard ends up being the last player 
until 1946. And so for that decade or so, scholars are seeing this as a, another version of the gentleman's agreement, right? There's no evidence that the owners are saying, hey, we're not hiring black players, but we do know that this is the Great Depression, uh, that there were multiple works, uh, multiple uh, protests among whites saying that uh, no blacks have a job until all the whites have a job. And so there's this, this point in which that black players are pushed out of professional football in the 1930s and early 1940s. Right. Um, and, and real quick before we get there, the, uh, if I don't mention this, the, the ghost of Paul Robeson will, will wake up and smack me. Uh, <laughs> right. I have to know that Paul wrote the great Paul Robeson, right? Probably one of the most recognizable figures at that time also played professional football and he's, he's a, a records grad. Um, so, so if I didn't mention that, then I would be in trouble by, by the ghost of Paul Robeson. But, uh, so yeah, so gentlemen's agreement, um, exists in the NFL. And then we often don't talk about this as much as we do baseball because the NFL and professional football will we'll, we'll say wasn't as big as baseball, but they integrate in 1946, um, before major league baseball or before Jackie plays major league baseball, Jackie signed in 1945. But the professional football is reintegrated in 1946, and it's done with two teams. And I think by talking briefly about the history of how this is done, uh, we could get a sense of maybe the power that we could see um, amongst fans and owners to, to get things done, right? To, to right this wrong about Kaepernick and, and Eric Reed. And, and the two stories are this. Famously, there's the AAFL with, with the Cleveland Browns, right? And, and this is famous story because that's Paul Brown. And, and it's famous because it's easy to celebrate because he says, look, he doesn't see color. He wants the top, like best 11 players on the field at the same time. And he uh, signed Marion Motley and Bill Willis, uh, two, two great, great Hall of Fame football players. And then the flip side to this is going to be the Los Angeles Rams, who who actually moved from Cleveland to Los Angeles for the 1946 season, and they're in the NFL. And this is where the power comes in, where you can see change. Is And it's also why we don't talk about the Rams a lot, because the Rams wind up integrating with mm -hmm. Woody Strode and Kenny Washington, two ex-teammates of Jackie Robinson at UCLA. But they do that, and they have to do that, because the black press and black activists put political pressure on the team to sign a black player. And the reason why they had that power was because the Coliseum at that time and, and still is, it was a public stadium. And they're saying, wait a minute, you can't come in to this city with a lily white policy and us have to pay our tax dollars for that. And that's not going to happen. And the Rams have to give a trial. Mm -hmm. They want to give a trial to Kenny Washington. He signs, they give a trial to Woody Strode and he signs. And it, and it's it, it it so what these two examples speak to I think you as we alluded to at the beginning of this conversation right is that that it can be on ownership right to to, to have a moral compass and in many cases really a desire to win right this is you taking players who you think are better than other players right so there's a certain kind of sense you want to win uh, and 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 make you know right this wrong by hiring Kaepernick, uh, uh, at least giving him a shot to earn a job, uh, the same for Eric Reed. At the same time, there's a, there's a lot of civic pressure that can be placed on these teams, right? That these stadiums all across the country have been um, 
funded through a series of tax abatements. And so even though we talk about billionaire owners, billionaire owners are not building the stadiums, right? The people are, the citizens are. And so there's a certain kind of will uh, an opportunity on behalf of local communities to put intense pressure on these owners, right? That they remember saying that they are pay- they are footing these bills often to the detriment of their local communities, right? I lived in South Florida for a number of years, and when they built the new Marlins Stadium, is a terrible deal for Miami. Um, but at the same time, what we see is this sense, right, that the Miami can complain that they're broke. Uh, and, and that the citizens wanted more out of the stadium. They wanted the team to be competitive, which they did for like two years, right? But we have to see this intense pressure that can be placed on uh, ownerships because of the stadium funding situation, how these stadiums are being funded. And that has to be a, a strategy probably going forward. Right. And and I think the difficult thing in this is, like you said, is that the the cities it almost seems like the cities in the state give all the power back to the owners right and and they feel they don't feel mm-hmm. compelled to have to listen right because there's stories i could tell of of black activists like really forcing these owners to do something one great story is in 61 um the washington football team was coming you know they hadn't signed a black player yet and when they came to la we're talking about thousands of thousands of black people and white people protested at the coliseum and what it actually did, and we've talked about this before, is that it hurt the bottom line, right? Because fans were turned away mm-hmm. from the game, right? Fans stopped. And, and some fans felt morally compelled to give their tickets away. It's like, you know what? If they're protesting, you know, racism in sport, it's not right for me to, to show up to this game and support this. Um, but the scary thing is, and, and perhaps the reality here and today, I don't know if fans feel that more weight, right? If, 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 if they see a protest, like we saw recently in Sacramento and, mm-hmm. and perhaps we'll do another episode on this. I don't know if they're going to say, you know what, this is the wrong thing to go to this game. I think they're inclined in this day and age to say, I'm going to go to this game to prove a point that I don't care about, you know, your, your grievances. I mean, we see this, I think every year, in Cleveland again, right, with the Indians, right? right? Like that Native Americans have protested outside of Cleveland Stadium on opening day uh, for several years and fans stroll into the game and not just ignore the protests, but often berate the protesters. And so we have a sense that where uh, we, that, that the question is whether or not if these protests are going to be uh, effective it also depends on kind of the moral compass of not only owners, but also local communities about these issues. Right. And the other thing we, we have to be clear on is that, you know, Cap is not the first NFL player to protest and, and Eric Reed is not the first player to protest. And there's a history of NFL players protesting or, or we'll say professional football players protesting. And we saw a lot of this in the 1960s. And, and what I get asked and, and what we talked about uh, sometimes with ourselves is trying to figure out, like, how do you have something like, the AFL protests uh, of 1965, where you have 22 black players boycotting an all-star game in New Orleans, or earlier in 1961, you have the black players in the Raiders saying, we're going to boycott this game in Mobile, Alabama. And and throughout the, the decade, this mm-hmm. happens. And you don't. it doesn't seem like there's a, a major consequence, right? The players still play. Ernie Ladd protests a game, he gets to play. Clem Daniels of the Raiders uh, protests a game, and he gets to play. And I'm trying to figure out... Uh, you know, why Mm -hmm. that is like, yeah. So why do these players, right. Get a protest and, and essentially 
they don't risk it all. Well, I think there's a, I mean, context matters, right? I think that, that these protests in the mid sixties are also uh, buttressed and backed up by the larger civil rights movement. Right. right? And that owners much rather deal with uh, their players who are expressing particular kinds of grievances about playing in, in the deep South or treatment uh, in new Orleans, uh, then deal with Martin Luther King uh, showing up and, and, and leading a protest against their league or their team in particular. And so I think that, that there, if, if we are being honest, right, these owners in the sixties are also doing cost benefit analysis. They're looking at the larger picture across the country of these movements. They watch the bus boycotts be effective in multiple cities across the South, most notably uh, Montgomery. Um, they're looking at that they don't want a boycott of um, their sporting event to be wrapped up in the larger civil rights movement. Right. And, yeah. and I think, that I think there's, that's, that's a threat. And I think that's a real uh, fear on the part of owners that what we don't see now, and we do see the Black Lives Matter movement, we do see a series of protests both locally and nationally, but none of it has the same kind of um, heft and weight that uh, the civil rights movement, especially by 1960, had achieved. Right. And, and I think it's it's real, too. Like we could say, I don't, you know, that that owners are afraid of this and, and people could blow this off. But we could give examples. So one of the great examples I talk about in, in this book, We Will Win the Day, I have a chapter all on the Deep South, um, is in New Orleans. Uh, black fans boycotted not only the fact that the minor league baseball team, the Pelicans, didn't have a black player. They also uh, protested and boycotted because. The stadium was segregated. So between 1955 and 1959, black players or black fans stopped going to the games and the team had to fold. They lost a significant amount of business. Mm-hmm. And you would have the GM say, I'd rather have integrated stadiums than have to shut down my team. And I think that to me shows power in black fandom. Um, I don't know how you do that outside the deep south where it's not a team where there's not a lot of black players and i think the other thing to your point that you're making about the civil rights movement is integration is a lot easier to deal with right if a player like clem daniels or ernie ladd or art powell are protesting because they want integration it's a lot easier to deal with than what cap did right and that is to deal with police brutality and and make and do two Mm -hmm. things one make other players have to 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 come to terms with this and the other thing, make the owners have to come to terms with this, right? So all of a sudden, if there's a police murder in your city, once Cap kneeled, everybody had to have something to say. And I think that's where the owners drew the line, right? They wanted to just use sports, make the money, not have any kind of social conscious, give some money away because that's what people do, uh, but not deal with anything. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is is that you know, this is also the post-civil rights era, right? Like one of the things that activists after 1968, really after 1965, is that they're struggling with how do you extend this movement? How do we talk about these structural inequalities? How do we talk about police brutality? And not only talk about them, but achieve certain kinds of progress on these issues, right? Um, I think this has been the challenge of facing, you know, Black activists and activists of all colors for the last, you know, 50 years. And I think this is, you know, what King was talking about at the Poor People's Movement and trying to you know, combine race and class, um, that that is a, a profound struggle that police brutality is probably the most uh, sharply, um, uh, the, the most critical example of this, po- of this challenge. Because activists since 
the 1910s have been talking about police brutality, right? You see a city like Miami, for instance, you know, their, their attempt to, uh, deal with it is through race management. So they hire black police officers to to police black neighborhoods, but what they could not step one foot into a, a predominantly white neighborhood, right? And this is how uh, and during segregation that cities try to tackle uh, police brutality. So this has always been a very difficult issue. Uh, in Atlanta, Maynard Jackson, I talk about this a little bit in my book, uh, The Challenge of Blackness, Maynard Jackson faces off against the Fraternal Order of Police because he had dared to suggest that there were black there was police brutality in black communities, right? And so and this is in the 1970s. Uh, and so this has been a long going issue and a very difficult issue. And that Cap using his platform to tackle this difficult of an issue uh, speaks to where we are now, really after Trayvon Martin uh, and, and, and really bringing these issues forward. Um, but this is this is really why we have to, to, to kind of give him his props and his honor, because, you know, he risked a lot. He had a hundred million dollar contract. You know, no athlete in the 60s had $100 million to lose. Right. Um, and this also gets us to the point, too, where where I think it exposes the owners. Right. And this is one thing we've been we've been talking mm -hmm. about. And and to, to put this in context, that we do. Right. We, we talk about um, this idea of the fox versus the wolf. And, and as the, the civil rights historian that you are, too, and not only you're a great sports historian, uh, could you explain that? Like when I say fox versus wolf. Right. Malcolm most famously said this uh, in, uh, in, the, in 1963, I believe, where he talked about uh, the fox provides a uh, uh, versus the lamb, right? That the fox is a uh, appears safe uh, to the lamb, right? Uh, and at the same time that, the, that the, the fox will probably get the lamb, whereas the wolf uh, is aggressive uh, and that he uh, the, as an animal, it scares uh, the lamb away immediately. Uh, and Malcolm goes on to describe that uh, white liberals in many cases are the fox, right? That they are uh, the ones who seem to be your friend. They are the ones who are uh, in charge of what uh, scholars have recently been calling race management. Um, that these are uh, supposed allies uh, and the wolves are the conservatives, the Klan, the people that you know are against your, in, uh, your interests. And what we're really witnessing in uh, in this modern context, and why I think this applies, at least uh, somewhat applies to these understanding of these owners, is you have some owners who are clearly taking a hard, uh, starkly conservative line. Someone like Bob McNair, where he said, uh, uh, what did he say? We have uh, the inmates running the prison, right? And when people were appalled that he had the audacity to say that out loud, he quickly apologized. And then earlier this month, he says, you know, the only thing I regret is I regret apologizing. So he doubles down on his original statement that the inmates are running the prison. Right. He's a wolf. Right. And, and oh, <laughs> what were your initial thoughts on that though? Like when, when it's hard for me to grasp, like here you are calling these guys inmates and it's clear as the, the owner of the Houston, Texas, he's not talking about JJ Watt. Right. Like he's, he's right. Oh, about, absolutely. Right. I mean, this nameless, like our faceless figure, but we know is black. Right. And, and, and that's what gets me because as you said earlier, the football player without his helmet, it's hard to recognize, but we know he was talking about a black player. Well, I think it's also like, I, you know, I don't understand. 
I'm competitive, right? So, right. you know, we're sports historians, but we're also sports fans. And, you know, you want your team to win. And to me, that seems uh, that seems the opposite of competitive, right? That you are holding this line, uh, making uh, these kinds of statements that would turn off potential free agents, that would turn off uh, players from playing for you. It would turn off, it would, you know, people would ask for trades if they have that kind of leverage, right? You run that kind of risk. Uh, and so to me, as a fan, you're like, this is this is crazy. That's also crazy in the 21st century. Like, you know, like to think that one could still say this out loud and not be, you know, secretly recorded uh, as Donald Sterling was, um, that he said this willingly uh, on the record uh, in public. Uh, and so this is it, it speaks to the kind of hostility this kind of uh, that we're experiencing in this particular moment. Right. And, and to me, I think part of it and I uh, is. It's this reality that he's afraid, right, uh, of of the black athletes speaking, and and it gets me to two quotes that that cut up. I love here. One is from Cookie Grokers, and and if listeners don't know who Cookie Grokers is, is one of the better players in the 1960s. And it's also really one, perhaps one of the first uh, professional football players known to speak his mind and and not you know really give any. Uh, S about it. And, and one of the things, and this is quoted in the Houston Post 1968, uh, the columnist, so it's Houston Post is a white daily newspaper, and the columnist is talking about Cookie Gilchrist, and, and he quotes Cookie as saying, quote, a Negro who speaks out or an athlete who demands to be paid what he's worth is always branded a troublemaker. And this also is very familiar to a Jackie Robinson quote who said 10 years prior, quote, as long as the Negro is humble and submissive, he's approved by the majority group. But when he demands his rights, he is regarded by many as arrogant and a troublemaker, unquote. And I think what Gilchrist's quote and Robinson's quote speaks to is the fact that McNair saw them speaking out, right? And and all of a sudden wants to label them the troublemaker, the, the prisoner, because these athletes today, and, and this McNair's quote comes in the context of the uh, Players Alliance, right? Trying to get owners to do something about uh, police brutality and also kind of negotiate on kneeling, which <laughs> maybe in another episode we'll talk about how they sold, sold out Eric Reed and, and Colin Kaepernick. But he saw players having power. And I think, and, and I want to hint this because I, I want to do this, come mm-hmm. back to this on another podcast, but he saw them having power not only in um, the police brutality issue, and I, and I don't think that bothered them, but not as much as players having power collectively coming together as a black ma- labor mass, and it scared him. And because they're doing that, all of a sudden, that was criminal to him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, it was it 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 spoke to this uh, this older fear of black power in general, right? That when black power came on the scene. Uh, in the mid late '60s, that people didn't even hear what was said. I mean, King, you know, said this, and where do we go from here? He talks about how he was uh, he believed in the ideas about black power that black people needed political power, they needed economic power, but he knew that the the phrase itself, black power, was was more scary for any potential allies and enemies. Right. Um, and so I think that there's something about that this very much is speaking out. And we see this and and this you don't even have. And I think this I love the the Cookie Gilchrist quote. Right. And when you compile it and when you put it with the Jackie Robinson quote, there's two things that stick out, not just in terms of activism, but when he demands to be paid what he's worth. Right. So there's a certain thing about labor. The other piece is that uh, when when Jackie Robinson talks about humble and submissive, submissive like when you're not and so we even see this in someone who is as popular 
uh, as Marquette King, the punter, right? Like, like Marquette King's not talking about police brutality. He's a guy who punts for a living, who has a great personality, who's really trying to use that to build his, you know, in our modern term, to build his brand. And that was too much, right, for the Raiders, right? The new, the new regime in Los Angeles. Yeah, and they're moving soon. Oh, yes. excuse me, Las Vegas now, right? Uh, right. Uh, for the Raiders, right? And so Marquette King gets cut. But, you know, anybody, when you do the stats, right? And this is where I like the analytics, like with the data, people are helpful, right? They're like Marquette King is easily in the top three punting for the last three or four years, right? And so we understand the value of the game. So like, even if you want to win, right, black right. people cannot have too much personality, right? And so, and, and, and so it's not just simply protest, but it's also too much personality. And so, again, you take you make an anti-competitive decision. Uh, and I think that's the one that's most stark is that we look at these these owners, we look at these coaches, we look at these general managers who are making this decision and they sit up there every year talking about how they want to win the Super Bowl. Right. And then yeah, I, just, yeah, I don't no. believe you. And I think real quick. <laughs> and, 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 and so McNair becomes the example of the wolf before we get. To the Fox, I, I have to say, we got to do something on Cookie one day. Like, I saw somewhere that there's a, a potential documentary on him, but I think he's such a fascinating character that that we, we got to highlight in, in one of these shows or, or in some of our work. Uh, he's one of these guys that that is oh, the absolutely. modern 1960s athlete that all of a sudden, when later on in that decade, in the early 70s, you get O.J. Simpson, people forget, right? And I think we got a couple. Uh, right, absolutely. Um Oh, I mean, there's a whole gang of those guys, right? Like Ernie Ladd, all these dudes had huge personalities that were, right. um, who played right. in that. Well, if era. I had time, I'd do like an Ernie Ladd book or something like that. I just think he's he's fascinating. But <laughs> I'm worried all the wrestling heads would come after me, right? Because he's a wrestler too, and 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 wrestling heads know a right. lot about wrestling history, uh, which is <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we don't really want to fight um, those battles. Right? So let's talk about the Fox then in this in this case, and that is. Stephen Ross of the Miami Dolphins. So Stephen Ross, I think, is is has another quote that came out in the last month or so. Um, he was talking about he came out against kneeling. He said, uh, "I like Donald Trump. I don't support everything he says, but overall, he's trying to make a point, and his message became what kneeling was about. Uh, and from that standpoint, the public was interpreted it as a kneeling as the same way as Donald Trump." So I see this as incumbent on us as the NFL to adopt that. Uh, that's how I think the country is now interpreting the kneeling issue. Now, he quickly says that he's uh, the next day that he was not telling his uh, players to not kneel. But what's interesting about Ross is for two things. One, that his statement, uh, he definitely presents himself as a, an ally in looking out for the best interests of players and players who are protesting. Uh, and I was immediately reminded when I first read this quote about how uh, liberal clergy members in Birmingham had sent that letter to Martin Luther King. Um, and he says uh, in that letter to King and the protesters in Birmingham in 1963, it says, however, we are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely, end quote. And I think this notion that, that liberals in this context are trying to tell uh, African-American activists how 
they should protest. Right, right. And they were trying to control it. And I think this is what Ross is doing. He's like, oh, I'm okay with you protesting, just not in this particular way, right? Um, and so Ross is also very liberal, right? He is um, created the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality, this RISE program uh, that is uh, trying to navigate the issues of racism uh, and bringing sports communities together to talk about equality, respect, and understanding. Uh, and so Ross is putting his own money behind trying to find solutions uh, to these issues. But at the same time, he wants to control how the protest happens. Right. No, and I think that's the uh, that's a fabulous comparison, right? Bringing in the Birmingham and, and just really how King came after the white liberals, right? I think that's why that, that piece always sticks out, right? And and Ross kind of fixed in that that, mm -hmm. that idea we said that that now we're here we are talking X and King, right? Are we talking how we're talking foxes, right? And this idea that ultimately they're gonna get you. <laughs> um and it's not to say that Ross is doing anything bad, but look, he's not hiring cap, right? He's not getting any of these players who are protesting and he had several players protesting. He, he's uh, they're on the team and I don't know who's still on the team or, or what kind of difficulty someone like um, I believe Kenny Stills is having uh, with that or what kind of support he has. But again, this idea that you want to control it, right? Um, the manner of the protest where King would say and what others would say is like, look, we need your help to attack the problem. Don't attack us. Right. And I think that that's where he fits perfectly into this idea of the mm -hmm. box and this, this, this well-meaning, I don't even know if he's liberal or not, I doubt it, but just well, comes off well-meaning but at the same time he's not dealing with the problem and the problem with this issue mm -hmm. is police brutality uh yeah uh, well at the same time i mean what we get in both of those circumstances with mcnair and with ross is uh our teams making uncompetitive decisions right they're making a decision in which um that Tannehill was in the the middle of the pack as a quarterback maybe lower uh, they didn't make the playoffs, I don't believe. Uh, Houston, uh, before last season, definitely needed a quarterback. Uh, and uh, Deshaun Watson got hurt, uh, tore his knee up, uh, and so they have some question marks. And so there's not, a, there's not a situation. In either one of those situations, you can't look at it and be like, oh, they're set at quarterback uh, that they can afford to not bring cap in see if he would fit their system what you see is a lot of uh a lot of uh excuse making about for for below average backup quarterbacks um and the point is if you're trying to trying to win a super bowl as you say every year then you make decisions in theory that will help you and these programs make decisions all the time right they take um they take players who have uh, abused their wives who abuse drugs who have made mistakes we're fine. We're willing to take second chances on these other issues, but apparently activism is the bridge too far, right? Challenging police brutality is the bridge too far. Uh, and that's when you, that will lead you to make an uncompetitive decision, whether you're as outspoken as, as Bob McNair or as um, uh, more nuanced, I guess, as uh, Stephen Ross. Right. No, I mean, so, and, and to add to that, right, guys who've committed drunk driving murder, right, or eventually Michael Vick gets a chance, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and here we are, if it looks like Cap's not going to get a chance, but but you, you never know. He, he got the trial with the Seahawks. But if in the, at the end of the day, if Cap never gets a chance and then Vick gets back on the field after what he does with that dog. So, I mean, that would say a lot. 
where the owners are when comparing right things, right? Issues versus like dog fighting versus protests and police brutality. And this gets us right to our final point. And, and that is like, what are the solutions here, right? It's one thing to talk about it, but what do you think um, are the solutions? Well, the solutions, I think they're twofold, right? I think this circles back to some of our earlier decision-making that players, because there are only a finite number of jobs, uh, NFL jobs, and there are more players who are willing to sacrifice their bodies and not say anything in terms of activism to take one of those jobs. There's not a lot of leverage on the part of the players. This is why someone like uh, Cap and Eric Reed could be still without jobs at this point after demonstrating that they're high-quality players. Um, but we could use uh, you know high-quality, in-value, uh, uh, you know, in-need uh, free agents to make decisions and to be publicly say, I'm not selecting uh, a said team because the ownership group, right? Um, you know, no one in the NFL has the kind of power that LeBron, for instance, in the NBA wields, uh, where he can make statements about ownership groups uh, and, and still uh, control his own destiny. I think that's the one strategy. And the other strategy is what we talked about earlier. I think we have to go back to to to, to communities have to rally around uh, and, and protest owners uh, and support the players in their town who are uh, risking their careers and livelihoods to bring attention to this issue. And I think what we would you know, what we would like to see is more uh, players who are not just listening to one another and not just listening to owners, but really talking to activists in, the, in their local communities about what the things that they could do to help uh, these to, to help try to make uh, some inroads on these progress on these issues such as police brutality. Right, right. No, I think those are perfect. And, and I'd say, too, like on, on that second point is when we talk about communities getting involved, is is this going to require um, those outside the black community helping out, too? Right. You have to mm-hmm. be willing to, you know, to see that this is a problem. Right. Um, and even though it's just Cap right now, it's just Eric Reed. I don't think we should see it as that. Like, it's just two individuals. It's this idea of suppressing free speech. It's this idea of these owners saying that, you know, they, they don't think, you know, police brutality is a worthy subject to, to deal with, right. To, to, to protest. Right. And, and we need to have a strong stance on this, right. Because as, as a, as a father, I know you're a father of two boys. I'm a father of a young uh, boy. Like, I don't want my, my kid to grow up in a, in a world where like just over on the other side of the state, just what yesterday and, in Rochester, Michigan, a young 14-year-old boy knocks on a white guy's house and all of a sudden they're shooting at him and this kid just wants direction. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think this is part of, this is the larger issue here. And and I think by seeing Cap get an opportunity to play, it would say a lot about where we're heading um, in these tough times. No, I think that's excellent. And I think, I think it's important to also highlight someone like Chris Long, who has been uh, very supportive of, of players. I, I saw yesterday he talked about uh, on on the record, I think on NFL Network, talking about uh, that cap being excluded is is a disgrace to the league and 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 very much hints at collusion. And the same for Eric Reed. And so he's taking a very vocal stance. But it's no surprise that he still has a job, though. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, no, you're exactly right. But on that note, man, I think we did our speaking of jobs. I think we did our job. All right, that's it. Right? I think I think we we cleaned up. Uh, we hit episode one out of the park. Um, uh, and as works. Eric B and Rock Kim say, peace, 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 peace.